Today's word is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is word of God. Well, we have, uh, we're pretty behind schedule due to flat tires and copy machines that don't want to cooperate with certain pastors. I guess they like Joe, but they don't like me or Susan. (laughs) So, um, yeah, we're we're a good 15 minutes behind schedule. Um, We're going to do our best to to accommodate, but wouldn't you know it, today's topic happens to be a very difficult topic, so <laughs> it's going to be really hard to like cut short um, this very complex uh, topic about men and women and roles and power and how that works in marriage. So obviously, uh, it's, it's tough, but uh, I'm going to do my best, and uh, please have grace on me um, as we you know, are about 15 minutes behind schedule already. Um, so all that being said, <clears throat> you know, there's a, marriage is a very hot topic, um, and uh, you know, a question that we can ask is, what does the world and the media say about marriage, and is that the same as what God and His Word says about marriage? When we hear the world and the media talk about marriage, how does that compare to what God's word says about marriage um, and about husbands and wives and roles and power and authority and decision making? 
First of all, we have to understand that it's pretty much impossible to say everything uh, there is to say on this topic in one sermon. Uh, but, you know, Pastor Susung and I, that's the good thing about us being here, um, you know, full time. We're here to answer your questions during the week. And um, hopefully, as you listen to the message today, it'll raise some questions and you can um, come talk to uh, either one of us. And also, as we talked about in our announcements, we have a panel. That's why we're doing a panel, so that uh, some of these other things can be discussed. Um, Because they are are very important. For now, we're going to talk just about a few things. The first point today is this. The world frequently wants something different from what Jesus said. The world frequently wants something different from what Jesus said. And this applies uh, to marriage. Now... Be honest, when you first read this passage or when you first heard it, um, doesn't it make you squirm just a little bit, right? Uh, Wives, submit to your husband in everything. Uh, Like, oh, I'm not a woman, and even I kind of like, whoa, (laughs) okay, (laughs) you know. Now, think about this. Why does this passage and those types of words and ideas Why does that elicit such a reaction from us? Think about that for a second. It's because what our world says about marriage is very different from what God says about marriage. And we being products of our current culture, whether we uh, can help it or not, um, there are certain values and ideas about marriage that we were taught. And they weren't all necessarily in line with God, with what God actually says marriage is. And so that tension that we feel is um, those points at which, you know, we kind of deviate from God's truth. And for our particular culture here in 2016, remember, this passage was written 2,000 years ago. This passage has stood the test of time. And there have been many, many, many people and cultures who have read this passage, and it was no big deal. They read it and go, yeah, that makes sense. Now, those other cultures may not have flinched at Ephesians 5, but those other cultures deviate from God's truth in other ways. And and maybe they look at Isaiah 53 and and they flinch. Or maybe they'll flinch at a passage that you and I kind of just take for granted and we accept without any argument, but then they flinch at other stuff, you see? So we have to understand that as a culture, we are not uh, an island unto ourselves. We, we have been influenced in uh, ways that, are, that we are aware of and ways that we're not aware of about everything, and that includes marriage. So, um, <laughs> you know, as far as what our current culture is saying, um, that kind of takes us to this next part here, um, our current culture, what does our current culture say about marriage? It says that marriage is um, about control. Marriage is about who has the power and who has authority, who has decision-making power. Um, some of the things that we hear from the media and the world is that marriage is a competition. Okay, And who are the contestants? The man and the woman, the husband and wife. And uh, they are actually opponents who are vying for control over 
you know, the finances of the couple and the decision-making of the couple. Um, if you think that this is too cynical of a take on what the world says, actually it isn't. Because uh, think about this. When someone says, they look at a couple and they go, oh, we know who wears the pants in that family. We know who, the wear, who wears the pants in that marriage. We all know what they're talking about, right? It's not a foreign idea to us. We automatically know. We even have a euphemism, a saying, we all know who wears the pants in that family because we're operating on the assumption that marriage is about control. Who has the pants? Who's the leader? That's what the world, that's how the world defines marriage. And it's very different, like what I said in point one, from what Jesus said is marriage. The world wants to see marriage as who gets to hold the power. Who gets to hold the power? But if you profess, if you profess to be a follower of Jesus, okay, then you need to make sure that, that you're not buying into those worldly opinions and those worldly views, consciously or unconsciously. We have to be very diligent and aware of what we actually believe and assume in our hearts. Our Father in Heaven takes the worldly way of viewing marriage and He flips it back to the way it was originally meant to be. Marriage is not about power grabbing. Rather, God defines marriage in terms of mutual offering. Almost completely opposite. The world wants to say marriage is grabbing power, making, telling your spouse and making sure and manipulating them to do what? What you want them to do, what you think is best. But God defines marriage as not power grabbing, but power giving, mutual offering. This is a very different way of viewing marriage, and I would say it's the original way of viewing marriage. Brothers and men's group, you know this verse, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, right? But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We've been called out of the world. Once the blood of Jesus washed you, you, now you are Jesus's. And so now we view the world through his enlightened eyes in a better way, in a more whole way. People who belong to Jesus have views that are not conformed to the pattern of this world. Instead, we are transformed by the ways of God. So what is God's way of doing marriage, you know. So how do you do leadership? How do you do decision making? Right? God isn't saying there isn't such things. He's saying there's a different way of doing it. How do we do that in a marriage that is centered on Jesus? To understand that, we need to understand the goal and work backwards from there. It makes a lot of sense. When you type in a destination for you on your map apps, you know, what do you do? You put in the destination. And then it figures out how to get there. It's a similar thing with marriage. We have to clearly define what is the goal, the destination of marriage. And then from there, then we'll figure out how to get there. If we fail to clearly define the destination of marriage, then how we get there is all up for grabs. Now it's about who's more powerful, more persuasive, um, you know, all that stuff then it becomes a power competition again. So today's second point is this. The Jesus-centered destination of human beings. What is this destination? Um, 
God teaches about our destination all throughout scripture. I'm gonna try not to spend too much time on this because we've talked about this, but it is so related, really, so that we can understand other parts of this passage. One of those places where the destination of human beings is described is in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis, and we've talked about that. And so I'm just going to write down here for you what our destination is, our our God-given purpose. Our God-given purpose, or destination, whatever you want to call it, is twofold, okay? Number one, it's for us to be heirs of God, that's a symbol for God, and receive all the goodness of God. Okay? That's one way to put it. I said it's twofold. The second thing is to then uh, God desires, and you should write this down too, if you can, to share said goodness, okay, in the entire earth, and we are a part of God's family. Slash team to do this. Does that make sense? That is our God given destination. And I write it down because we're going to come back to it. It's very important. It's twofold. For anyone who wants to live a Jesus centered life, to be heirs of God and to grow into that identity and to receive all the goodness of God. And then number two, God desires to share that goodness with the whole world, and you and I are part of God's team to do this. So that's our destination. God created Adam and Eve as a team. And the purpose of that team was to reflect God's goodness to the rest of the world. We see that in Genesis 1 and 2. I hope you're beginning to see why we need to understand all this to understand then how does a marriage work. Because now you understand now, oh, my marriage has a purpose. My marriage has a destination, a goal. God has us um, understanding that In this team, as we reflect his goodness, that husband and wife are to be so intimate with each other that they are one flesh and they operate together as one united team to help accomplish the most glorious human enterprise ever. So this brings us to point three. To help us reach this Jesus-centered purpose, destination, destiny, goal. God created marriage, which is a Jesus-centered team with Jesus-centered roles. Let's say that again. Marriage is a Jesus-centered team, and this Jesus-centered team has Jesus-centered roles. Every team has roles, right? 
On the Golden State Warriors, we have people who are good at defending the rim. We have people who are good at grabbing the ball. We have people who are good at passing the ball. We have people who are good at putting the ball in the basket from very long distances. Every successful team has different roles, but they all work for what? The same goal. We can look at marriage in this way. Now, does every person need to be ma uh, married to fulfill this purpose? No, a person can be single and fulfill their purpose as a single person and be completely fulfilled in their calling from God. And we covered that topic in sermons one and two of our series, so I'm not going to devote what limited time we have to that. Uh, you, if you miss those, you can uh, look online and, uh, and look at those sermons number one and two. So if marriage is a team and we're meant to reflect God's goodness, then that means God has an infinite number of facets. That means it's going to take more than one person to reflect God's goodness, right? That's how God designed it. God didn't design Adam and then just stop there. God, in his infinite wisdom, decided, I'm going to create Adam and Eve, male and female. God didn't create Adam and then Eve and then looked at Adam and go, hmm, click, drag Adam into trash bin, and ah, much better, just Eve. That's not what he did either. He didn't say the world should be full of just Eve. He created it in his ultimate wisdom, Adam and Eve. And his design is for his goodness to be reflected in that intimate marriage relationship. So, um, as we think about this, marriage as a team, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but it's very helpful. Because if you work at a company, you probably have worked on a team. Uh, we know about team in sports. We know about team in the kitchen. You know, in the VBS, we have a team that works very well together. And on any team, you have different tasks. You have different members, different giftings. Each team member is responsible for different tasks. On a Jesus-centered team, logically, it's Jesus who assigns those roles. Mind you, as we talk about different roles, we can't possibly, again, go into a comprehensive list and descriptions because really, literally, there's like an infinite number of permutations uh, as you think about each individual man and woman and the gifts that they have. But there are some things that are Jesus-assigned, okay? Just like in any other team. So, these are the roles, Okay, um, again, it's by no means a comprehensive list. We're going to look at the roles here in this passage. Uh, verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's your role, husbands. There you go. That's your role. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Love your wives as yourself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ did for the church. Christ nourished the church, cherished the church. There's an emotional aspect, isn't there? And you and I both know that as husbands, we're not always so good at the emotional stuff. God wants us to be challenged and stretched and this is one of the ways that we can reflect God's greatness. Um, 
just kind of getting a little deeper into what this means to love the church and give himself up just like Jesus did for the church. Look at um, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands. That's to the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of this church. And then 24. Um, wives should submit in everything to their husbands. All right. Depending on where you stand on this issue, uh, men, you might be getting really excited about those verses, right? Like, oh, yeah, in everything, take that, wife, right? In everything, you need to submit to me. I'm like Jesus to you. But before you get too excited, does verse 22 and 24, those verses where it talks about what wives need to do, submit and everything to them, does that mean that husbands have the license to do whatever they want and uh, act like entitled, spoiled tyrants? Exploiting the weak, ordering their wives around however they want, whatever whim captures them, telling their wives to do it. The answer to that question is simple. God tells us, in verse 25 and, and forward, that husbands are to love their own wives like Jesus loved the church. Did Jesus act like an entitled, spoiled tyrant? No. Did Jesus act like a spoiled, entitled tyrant, throwing his weight around, lording his authority, domineering? No. So verse 22 and and 3 and 24 are not license, permission. It's not a permission for men to do whatever they want because women are to submit in everything to their own husbands. It says own husbands. By the way, it doesn't say women submit to men. Okay? It says wives submit to your own husbands. It doesn't say men love every woman. It says husbands love your own wives. Love your wives. Okay? I know some people, they like to conflate those things. I've heard people say it to me, and I've had to correct them, so that's why I'm saying it now. Jesus did not act like an entitled, spoiled tyrant. How did he act? Jesus always put the needs of others before his own. Husbands, do the same. Jesus served the weak. Husbands, do the same. Jesus ultimately sacrificed his body for the benefit of others. Husbands, you need to die to yourself that your family may live. That's what Jesus did. Wives, that's what it means for your husband to be your head. People who are not married yet, these would be good things to be looking for in a future mate. In another place, as we think about, okay, God, you're telling me to love my wife as Christ loved the church. What else did Jesus do? Jesus also gave a teaching about power. He said that we're not to lord it over, we're not to domineer over those, um, over those whom we're in charge of. Instead, the Son of God Use his power to serve, not to be served. That's in Mark 10. The Bible is very clear. Husbands, you are to use your power, your calling into this role of leadership to serve, not to be served, 
not to power grab, but to mutually offer. When you go home, is your mindset, I'm here, serve me? Or is your mindset like Christ? I've come back from here into this world of my family, and I want to I just flow the grace of God through me. And I want to serve, not be served. This is what Jesus said. Recently, I saw a documentary about something that I kind of had known about, but not in, in this kind of detail. Um, you guys know about the Congo and Africa. And you may or may not know that that area is actually a very, very uh, desirable area because it has vast mineral resources, rich in uh, minerals that are in very high demand, copper, tungsten, gold. Uh, those are all minerals that your phones and electronics use. The world is hungry for those things, and Congo has deposits after deposits. Another thing about the Congo, there's a lot of violence and death and rape that has occurred. Why? Because people are greedy for control over those mines. One of the people who was interviewed said this, the world sees our vast mining resources and minerals as a blessing. But we've turned it into a curse. What God had deposited there as a blessing of resource for the people in that region, man has instead turned it into a curse. And it's invited bloodshed and rape and broken lives. And a big factor in all of this are the types of leaders that have come to power in that region. You see, in any context, kings are given authority and power, or they take it. An evil king, a self-serving king, he knows that he has power, and he uses that power what? To serve himself and to serve his own aims and to line his own pockets. We have a really good example of that in North Korea right now. Just go search his name. And you'll see all the ridiculous things that he does to lift himself up and to make his life more comfortable, all the while the very people that he's supposed to care for are suffering. And they're suffering because all of the resources of the country are going to him and his regime. An evil king loves himself, not his people. He cares not for them, nor for their welfare or their future. He cares only about himself and preserving himself and advancing his goals. That is a self-serving king. A good king, on the other hand, uses his power and authority that has been given to him to serve the good of the people, the good of the nation. He loves the nation, the people, more than he loves himself. That's a good king. A good king understands that he has been given unique position to make important decisions that can have ramifications for the entire country and for his people. And therefore, he uses his role to help his people, not to hurt them or to use them. That's how a good king exercises power. He uses power to lift his people up. And if need be, sacrifice his own interest for the sake of the people. Because guess what? Sometimes making the right decision is not always easy for the one who's making the decision. 
Sometimes you have to make a decision that's not easy, but you do it for the people, but it costs you, you personally. That's what a good king does. Some of you who are history buffs, whether European history or Korean history, there are plenty of examples of this, right? Jesus is the good king who, in his own words, he says, I came to serve, not to be served. I came from the comforts of heaven, from the throne of where I was sitting. I came here not to conquer and divide and domineer, but to serve, to serve you, to wash, to wash your feet. Husbands, Love your wives as Jesus loved us. Use your power, your role to serve, not to be served. What are some practical ways that this might happen? Well, Christ compares himself to a good shepherd. So, not a bad shepherd, a good shepherd. So, by looking at what a good shepherd does for his sheep, we can gain some, gain some insight into the ways that Christ loved the church and therefore some practical ways that husbands are to love their wives. Good shepherds provide for their sheep and lead them to green pastures, right? So also, husbands should provide for their wives and household. In fact, this, this verse scared me. This verse scared me. And I need to share it with you because it scared me and I want to share it with you because it really convicted me. The Bible actually warns husbands about the seriousness of providing for our wives and family. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his household, then he has denied the faith and he is worse than an unbeliever? Whoa. God takes the role of providing for his people very seriously. One of his name is Yahweh Yaira. That means God who provides. And so if we are to reflect God's character, then we can't pick and choose what we reflect, right? As a good shepherd like Jesus, we provide for those who are entrusted to our care. And this is a very, it's a very good thing that Jesus, that God gives us this verse um, to remind us. The next thing, good shepherds are called to lead the flock to the right places. So husbands, we're to lead our wives and uh, we're to take them to the right places and we're to lead them in steps towards this purpose. Of course, this is a very big purpose, so there might be many steps that we need to take to get there. As a husband, part of your role is to determine those many steps. And to decide on those. And of course, consult with your wife. Leading your family. For what? For this. Next thing, good shepherds protect and they care. Care for their uh, flock. As Jesus protected and cared and even got on his knees to wash his disciples' dirty feet. So husbands... You need to protect your wives and children. You need to care for their needs. You need to serve your wife as a humble servant like Jesus did for you. Wash her feet, maybe even physically, but definitely uh, metaphorically as well. And finally, when the sheep is threatened, a good shepherd will lay down his life if that's what the situation calls for. And as Jesus did on Calvary, on the cross, so husbands, we will lay down our lives 
and we will die to our own interests for the benefit, for the needs of our wives, all kind of aligned again with this grand purpose. So husbands, future husbands, friends of husbands, your scriptural takeaway today is this. Lead your family toward the gospel goal, the destination of of God's people, and lead with Christ-like love, not abusive, not domineering, not having a double standard for yourself. But instead, like Jesus did, use your power to serve not to be served. Lead by your own example, not just your words. So that's enough for husband. How about the wives? Wives, submit. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. As the church submits to Christ, so also you wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Wow. The reason I talked about husbands first is I want you to understand, this is, in God's mind, this is the picture. And if we can have kings who will sacrifice themselves for the lowest pauper, then that's a king worth following. Wouldn't you agree? If there's a king who would die for me, me, just His own enemy, actually, it says in Romans. I was his enemy, and this king died for me. Then he has turned me, an enemy, into a friend. And I will follow him. And this is why I did husbands first. So that, wives, you can see it's not a bad thing. Of course, assuming that your husband that you have or select um, embodies this and, and... And this is their vision for their life. For wives, maybe uh, we, you know, we wonder, why can't there be two heads? Why can't there be like co, you know, co-leaders in the the marriage? 50-50, why can't we do that? Well, for the same reason, a kitchen team can't have two head chefs. For the same reason, you can't have a bunch of big, strong guys on a basketball team and no other kind of player. Because all they're going to be able to do is grab the ball, but there's going to be nobody who knows how to dribble or pass or put the ball in the basket. You can't have duplicate roles. If you have two head chefs on one team, then you're going to have many cooks in the kitchen, and we all know the saying about that, right? It results in chaos, confused expectations, striving, Competing and disappointment, resentment, and injury. Doesn't that sound eerily similar to an unhealthy marriage? There are a lot of ways to skin a cat, but if you have different people all deciding to skin the cat in different ways, you're going to end up with a big mess. That's why you can only have one head. Doesn't necessarily mean that what they do is always the best, but it's best for the unit. Because they stick together and they're united. So in marriage, God gives that role, okay, to husbands. And God gives the role of helpmate to the wife. Now, you might start squirming again. Oh, head sounds so much better than helpmate, right? (laughs) And we talked about this a few weeks ago. 
If you think that the wife's role is inferior, did you know that one of the ways that God describes himself is that same word, helpmate? God himself calls himself helpmate. And you know whose helpmate he is? Man's. The role of the wife is this equivalent thing to the role of God and how he is our strength and our help. That doesn't seem inferior to me. In fact, that seems very glorious. And even in 1 Corinthians 11, Scripture tells us that even Christ, the head of Christ, is the Father. God himself, the Son of God himself, is actually submissive to someone in this universe. Did you know that? The Son of God himself is called to submit. The problem with our world is we want to equate submissive with inferior. But in the Bible, those two are, it's a false dichotomy. Just because someone submits doesn't mean that they're inferior. If that were true, then it would mean that since Jesus submitted to the Father by going to the cross, then Jesus is inferior in value and essence. But Jesus is clearly not. They're just different. Same in value, same, identical in essence, but they are not interchangeable. They are, there's diversity in roles, but same in value. The reality is submission to the Father is not a path to shame. Wives, you might think that. The path, uh, the submission to your husband is not a path to inferiority. As Jesus showed us, Submission to the Father is a path to divine glory. Wives, that's what you have to look forward to. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. Therefore, because of that, because of his submission, God exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord of creation. He is to the glory of the God of the Father. That doesn't sound to me like a path to inferiority. That sounds to me like a path to glory. And Jesus, almost as if to say, I'm not just going to talk the talk, but I'm going to show you and walk the walk. He actually does it. It's true. It's a reality. It's there for you, wives. Kathy Keller, who's a wife, you know, Pastor Susung likes to quote Tim Keller, so I thought, hey, what about his wife, Kathy Keller? So let's have Kathy Keller um, say some things. She says something profound. Meditating on all of this, she said this, my submission is in marriage is a gift that I offer, not a duty coerced. Dang, that is good. That makes me admire Kathy Keller. That doesn't make me look down on her. That makes me respect her. Because I see Christ in that. So wives, future wives, friends of wives, your scriptural takeaway today is this. Just as Jesus submitted to the Father for the gospel, so if you're a woman or if you're a future wife or a current wife, I get to be like Jesus, and I get to submit to the Father like Jesus did. 
And my father is asking me to submit to my own husband and to respect him in all things and to be his helpmate, his Eitzer, helping to lead our family for this. I accept that call. Now, there are some fears that we may have on both, both ends as we listen to all these roles. Very daunting, right? Husbands, you might be thinking, so I got to like just continually serve? What if my wife just takes advantage of me? <laughs> Wives, you're thinking similar things. I got to continually submit. What if he's an idiot? <laughs> and he just keeps making the wrong decisions for our household. Husbands, you don't lay down your life and serve your wife because she's worthy or because she's a supermodel. Let's be honest, sometimes your wife makes mistakes, sometimes the same ones <laughs> over and over. Some, one day she's going to get older and more wrinkly and more slouched. No, you don't lay your life down because your wife is worthy. You lay down your life because Jesus is worthy and he did it already for you. And now you can trust him. And you'll be accountable to him, husbands. As the head, all decisions and fallout come to you. It comes to you in a different way, like an objectively different way than it goes to a woman, to the wife. You will be accountable, husbands. So <laughs> ask God for help, right? <laughs> and ask your Azer. Your helpmate for help. Wives, the main reason you submit to your husband is because he's such a great man who's worthy of your submission. Let's be honest, sometimes he makes the wrong decision for your household over and over. And as a head, he will be held accountable to Jesus. But rather, you submit to your husband because Jesus is trustworthy, because Jesus gave his life up for you. And he's asking you to do this. And guess what, ladies? You're going to be held accountable for how well you submitted to your husband, how much grace you showed in respecting your husband. Do it not for your husband's merit. Do it because of what Jesus did for you and what he's asking you and what he has in store for you. Let me end with this story. I want to end today with a confession. I don't know what you guys think of me. Some of you have only known me for a year. Some of you have known me for much longer. But I have a really hard time being a good husband in this way because serving doesn't really come naturally to me. I was the oldest in my family with two Korean parents. So as the oldest son, let's be honest, they don't really ask you to do much around the house. So from a young age, I wasn't used to necessarily doing the dishes or setting the table or vacuuming. That's just, again, culture, right? You see the culture aspect coming into play? My culture told me I don't need to do those things. I definitely didn't see my dad do that. I think to this day, I haven't seen my dad do the dishes. Maybe one time. I don't know. But... He's 70 years old now, so <laughs> that's what I learned, for better or for worse. And this is so contrary, right, to what I've just been telling you. 
Jesus came to serve, not to be served, but as a you know, young Korean man growing up in a Korean family, I came to be served. I came to the dinner table and I sit down. Serve me. So when I come into marriage, you can only imagine the kind of conflict and disagreements that are going to arise because supposedly I'm not as Korean and my wife is not as Korean. We're more Korean-American. So something must have you know, bled over, right? Supposedly. <laughs> but we're sinful, right? We cherry-pick from different cultures what we like. Now, many of you have met me and my wife, uh, Christy, just last year when we moved here a year ago, actually last week. And as, as I've shared with some of you, it's really been an amazing year. And now you may see Christy and think uh, that she's a pretty energetic person. But the Christy who is my wife now is actually much less energetic and active than she was even just three or four years ago. She used to... Um, run a private practice. Uh, she was cooking meals daily for her family. She helped me plant a church, which is different from being a pastor's wife. A pastor's wife is different from being a church planner's wife. Uh, believe me, I've done both. It's different. She led Bible studies for the woman during the week. During the weekends, we would invite the whole church over and cook for them and host them till we into the night. She volunteered at the schools the next day. She... Uh, and not to mention, we have four young kids that she's raising. And the kicker is, she did all this with joy. I thought she was crazy. <laughs> but you know what? It made her happy. She goes, oh, yeah, young, let's invite all the people to, to, you know, to, to our house. And, and some of the people are sitting here. Or we'll be in the next service. They know. And she wanted to do it. I said, honey, aren't you tired? I'm trying to preserve her. But she's like, I'm trying to, in Korean, akya her. But she's like, no, I want them to come. I love it. It made her happy. I was like, okay, well, if it makes you happy. Sometime in late 2011, she started feeling sick. And then later on, actually, it was a, during a trip up here to San Jose in 2012 for my sister's and Daniel's wedding, she started feeling deep pain in various parts of her body. When we returned to SoCal, which is where we were at the time, we saw doctor after doctor, but none of them could give us any answers. Nobody was able to help. Months turned into a year, and I witnessed my vibrant wife, I don't know why I'm doing She's fine now <laughs> with her zest for life, gradually become a shell of herself. The result of a year of constant pain and many days when she was so weak she couldn't even get out of bed. It was like my joyful, happy wife had gone away and in her place was this different person who was always ill and in pain all the time. One day I got a call from her on my cell phone. I picked up. And I heard a very faint voice say, Honey, I'm at Costco. Could you come pick me up? I'm like, huh? Well, how did you get there? Pick you up. And she goes, I drove here, but I'm feeling sick, and I can't drive back. Okay. So immediately I get in my car, drive to Costco, and I spot our minivan in the parking lot. As I walk to the car, I see Christy in the driver's seat, slumped over, with her head resting on the steering wheel. She was so weak that she couldn't even turn the ignition or drive. I was shocked. I was scared. Hundreds of thoughts raced through my head. One of them I distinctly remember was, what's happening to my wife? 
Not long after that, Thanksgiving 2012, Christy's been ill for about a year now. Holidays can be a weird time for families where someone is ill. It's early in the morning and I'm laying in bed, but I'm not asleep. I look over at Christy. She hasn't woken up yet. I catch myself thinking thoughts like, will this holiday season be the last holiday season that me and the kids will have with her? And then I start remembering all the things in the past that she's always asked me to do. And I remember the things that she wanted, the things that she wanted to do with me. Go to Europe, take ballroom dance lessons together, ride one of those tandem bikes together. I guess I was making a bucket list. In my journal, I was writing, I don't want to have these thoughts, but honestly, it's been over a year and her condition hasn't improved. Actually, it's worsened. Summer 2013. It's been almost two years now since Chrissy's gradual decline began, but there's a glimmer of hope. We showed Chrissy's CAT scans to a friend who's an oncologist, and he spots an abnormality. He calls in a favor with the specialist at UCLA Medical Center. We go. We finally get some answers. But unfortunately, all the answers are bad. He tells us that Christy has a cyst in the middle of her head. He says that the only treatment is to go into her skull and remove it mechanically, surgically. But because of the location near the optic nerves and the brain, there's a chance, a good chance of blindness, brain damage, lifelong pain, and or death. He tells us to get another scan in preparation for this surgery. We leave the office shaken. But that day, I had already planned to take Christy on a tandem bike ride along Venice Beach after the doctor's appointment. So we go. We rent a tandem bike. And we ride along the Pacific coast. We don't share a lot of words the rest of that day. But despite how the day began, we still share one of the most memorable days of our lives riding that beach on the bike, riding that bike on the beach together. A few weeks later, we we turn for the surgical consult. The doctor calls us into his office and he says, well, I have some good news. The cyst is gone. I almost laughed out loud. What? Not sure what was happening. He shows us a scan on his computer screen. Look, there it was. And in this latest scan, now it's gone. We actually have pictures, and uh, I was going to show them, but uh, too much time. Is there any explanation, I asked to the doctor, of what happened? No. What do you mean? What happened? The doctor, this accomplished doctor who's got this tenure at UCLA Medical, one of the you know, most prestigious you know, medical centers in the, in the country, he looks at me and he says, I don't know what happened. At that moment, I knew what happened. And I said to God, God, are you doing like some kind of biblical miracle here on my wife in the 21st century? The cyst is gone. Your wife is going to be okay. We left the office, got in our car. As we were driving away, I said to God, God, I feel so humbled that you, you did this for us, for me. You didn't have to do this, but you gave me my wife back. I'm so humbled. 
The reason I share this story is because, you see, all my wife ever did for 14 years was love me, serve me, and try to make me happy. And I'm ashamed to say that I probably took advantage of that. And I was a tyrant, imposing my way, not thinking of her. And maybe she was in this condition because I was using my power to take advantage of that. She worked herself literally to death, almost, loving and serving her family and doing this. And it was like God was saying to me, Young, I am entrusting my daughter to you. So you need to protect her. You need to give yourself up for her. You need to wash her. You need to love her as your own flesh. You need to cherish her as Christ cherishes the church. And I said, okay, I'm not going to make the same mistake twice. You gave me my wife back so that I could do this. Thank you. I'm so humbled, Jesus. Since then, Chrissy has mentioned that she feels like I spoil her. Personally, I don't think I do. I think I'm just simply doing what God asked me to do. And so when she says that she feels like she's getting too much love that she doesn't deserve, actually, it's not my love that she's feeling. It's the love of Christ flowing through me as I gratefully remember Christ's grace and gift to me. This is the glorious paradox of submission and sacrifice. The crazy thing is, the more I serve her now, the more she serves me, and the more she respects me, and the more she submits to me, which makes me fear the, the responsibility. And so I become more humble, and I go, Lord, help me to not take advantage again. Lord, I go to, I go to God, I say, God, how do I take care of my family? What should I do in this situation, in that situation, with this decision, this, that decision? And when she sees me do that, guess what? She respects me even more and submits me even And it's just crazy. She trusts me, and I can trust that I can lay my down life for her because she's not going to take advantage of me and vice versa. This is the glorious paradox of submission and sacrifice that we see in Christ. And this is a goodness that in your marriage, you have the calling as you fulfill those roles given by Jesus to accomplish this and to bring that grace of Christ to the world. Let's pray. Jesus, what can we say? You died for us while we were your enemies, not your friends. And you give us this glorious privilege to be part of this team. And you're asking us to, you've assigned, you've delegated roles to us. And now we get to fulfill those roles and obey your calling and submit to you. And 
in particular today, in this context of wives and husbands, that's what we're talking about today. And, and I hope, O oh Lord, that we have learned whether we're married now or whether we'll be married in the future, Lord, a picture of this mutual submission and mutual sacrifice. And that there be, need not be any fear when we do these things for each other because we have Christ as the king. Christ is the head of our marriage. So thank you, Jesus, for this great calling and for giving us these teams that we call marriages and where we can experience your love, not just reflect your love to the world, but we actually get to experience your love like you gave to me through my wife and hopefully for her through me. And we pray this for all of our people, whether married now or whether married later, single now, single later, oh Lord, uh, we just pray for everybody um, for the beauty of who you are to be known. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.